This is Storical, a monthly podcast and companion piece to Immortal Perfumes. In this series, we'll do a deep dive into the life and times of history and literature's most intriguing subjects, then discuss the best pieces of pop culture where you can get your historical fiction fix. I'm your host, JT Seams, the potions master at Immortal Perfumes. Join me on a journey through time and the ghosts of words past. This month's entry is about Hollywood's first African-American glamour girl and civil rights activist. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome back to Historical. I spent the last month on the road for Immortal Perfumes talking to thousands of people, which is weird because I think of myself as an introvert. But anyhow, what's been the most fun for me is talking to everybody about this podcast. So many people I talked to were looking for new podcasts, and it made me feel pretty good to get such an enthusiastic response. And also, it turns out that there's a whole lot of nerds out there who are just like me and you, so don't feel alone. I want to give a quick shout out to everyone that came out to these events, and also to all of you out there who have been listening and leaving reviews on iTunes and sending me emails. I started this and felt like I was just talking to myself and sending this out into the ether, but your enthusiasm has absolutely energized me, and I'm so excited to share more episodes with you in the coming months. Now, the first three episodes were all about some really famous, fascinating women writers, and we're going to look at more, but today I'm shifting gears to another topic I love, and that is old Hollywood, specifically the seedier parts of old Hollywood. Our subject today is the legendary Lena Horne. And if you're from my generation or thereabouts, you know her as Glinda from the cult classic musical, The Wiz. And if you were around in the 60s, you may remember her from TV specials or as one of the prominent entertainers who advocated during the civil rights movement with none other than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Lena had to live in that shadowy space where she wasn't really accepted by white society, but her light skin made her more desired in the North but it was a stain on her in the South. Not a fun place to navigate, I'd adventure a guess. So imagine yourself back in the Harlem of Jazz's heyday as we discover more about the life of Hollywood's first African-American glamour girl. Chapter one, the first family of Brooklyn. Upon the abject failure of post-Civil War reconstruction in the South, more than 40,000 African-American families migrated to the North in search of the opportunity for a better life. Among them were Cora and Edwin Horn. Edwin was not actually black. His mother was Native American and his father was a white Englishman. But because Native Americans were treated worse than African Americans at the time, he decided to pass as a black man to make it easier on his family. So there's some fun American history for you. Cora was a light-skinned black woman from Atlanta. Her father and grandmother were house slaves on the plantation of Dr. Andrew Calhoun, who was a relative of the infamous Senator John C. Calhoun, who was a vocal proponent of slavery. Despite these horrible circumstances, Cora's father eventually became one of the biggest and most respected businessmen in Atlanta. Because of generations of rape by white masters, Cora's father was mixed race and ended up marrying a white woman. And I'm unclear from my research whether he was trying to pass or not, but Cora and her sister, also named Lena, grew up privileged on account of their light skin and their father's connections. The sisters even earned university degrees. And this was at a time when few women, let alone African-American women, got to go to college. 
With all this talk about passing and exact language about skin tone, please know I'm using it to provide informational context on the struggles that Lena faced for her entire life. In Brooklyn, the horns align themselves with intellectuals, activists, and artists. Their brownstone in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood of Brooklyn was also Cora's launching point for many social causes that she worked on. Cora was a fiercely proud woman who preached the doctrine of respectability. She believed that Black people should at all times counter the stereotypes whites associated with their race. This meant that they always had to appear polished and well-dressed, they had to be well-spoken, and hide any hint of an accent. But most importantly, Cora believed they needed to pursue respectable careers and businesses. She became an activist and worked for such organizations as the NAACP, the Urban League, and the National Association of Colored Women. She also advocated for young Black men in her neighborhood, including securing a scholarship to attend Rutgers University for Paul Robeson, whose name I want you to put in your pocket, as he became hugely influential to Lena's rise and fall in Hollywood. Now, Edwin and Cora were determined to live a good life and help the other members of their race rise with them. However, this determination and desire to hide weakness at all costs meant that the Horn family was stoic with each other. There was no room for feelings, and this profoundly affected Lena. Edwin Jr., known as Teddy, was Edwin and Cora's second son. He was a pretty boy and a rebel. He felt stifled walking on the eggshells of his mother's demand for respectability. He traded in college for gambling and in time would be a kingpin in the seedy underworld. In 1916, he met and married a beautiful wannabe starlet named Edna. Like the Horn family, Edna had a mixed race background. Her father was a Portuguese black man and a famous inventor. Her mother was Native American. Edna had green eyes and light skin. Their courtship was fast and passionate. After marrying, the couple moved into the top floor of the Horn Brownstone. Edna soon became pregnant and gave birth to Lena Mary Calhoun Horn on June 30th, 1917. With a gambler for a son and a flaky actress for a daughter-in-law, Cora wanted to set her granddaughter up for success. When she was just two, Cora signed her up to be a member of the NAACP and even had her photographed for their monthly newsletter. Around this time, Teddy began to think the family life wasn't for him. He went so far as to fake tuberculosis and abandoned his family. Edna wasn't so much distraught by this as she was irritated that she was left alone with a child instead of pursuing her stage dreams in the theater. She too abandoned Lena and moved to Harlem in the hopes of becoming an actress. And this, dear listeners, is where we set our scene. Absent parents, too selfish to care for their daughter. Hardline grandparents who showed no love or warmth, just strict adherence to the pursuit of an impossible standard of excellence. And a lonely, light-skinned Black child, unsure of where she fit in. Chapter 2. Childhood on the Road Once Lena's parents skipped out on her, the small child was left with her grandparents in their Brooklyn brownstone. Now, in the last chapter, I mentioned a bit about their family history, namely the systemic rape of their enslaved ancestors, which led to their light skin. Because of this, and because of the family relationship with pro-slavery Senator John C. Calhoun, Cora hated white people, which I think we can give her a pass with that history. That seems pretty logical to me. What this meant, however, was that Cora did not want Lena hanging out with the Irish and the Swedish kids who lived in their neighborhood. Lena was forbidden from playing with white children, no explanation given to her other than that white men only wanted one thing from black women. It didn't end there, however. 
Cora also did not look kindly on African Americans that came from lower social classes. I really feel for Cora in that the systemic racism of the time, actually that still continues today, it was like Stockholm Syndrome, and that she hated what her oppressors stood for, but also internalized their hate against her brethren. It's a pretty terrible position for society to put someone in, and this, of course, had a formative impact on Lena. Now, her father had remarried and moved to Seattle. She rarely saw or talked to him, but he sent her gifts and letters every so often, which she relished. Oh, and I should also mention, I love this little fact about her. It's so cute. Um, Lena knew how to read before age five, and like you, dear listeners, she was an avid reader and found escape in books. Her mother at this stage liked to use Lena as a prop or a doll. She liked to take her down to the theater and show her off. As a small child of four, this was magical for Lena to see the intricate set designs and actors scurrying around pretending to be more than what they were. Best of all, Edna, her mother, would sometimes let Lena watch from behind a fireplace on the stage. She could see the actors in the audience from a hole in the set. Cora was pretty bitter about all this. She found Edna's dreams frivolous, and as you can imagine, did not appreciate Edna leaving the parenting to her and only taking her child when it was convenient. In 1921, Edna, against Cora's wishes, allowed Lena to play the part of a sick child lying in bed in Edna's performance in Madame X. This performative for Lena, who loved moving between dressing rooms and backstage and seeing her mother up on the stage, dazzling starlet to the young child's eyes, it was here where she first dreamed of stardom. Cora, however, was none too pleased. She enrolled Lena at the Ethical Culture School in Brooklyn and forbade Edna from seeing her daughter. Lena excelled in school, avid reader, remember, but Cora was confusing to Lena. In later interviews, Lena called her grandmother a militant little lady and said, she never made a child of me. I was always an adult. Cora made Lena attend her many meetings and had the child serve members tea, but all of that was soon to change. Edna began arranging clandestine meetings to see her daughter. She'd use neighbors or relatives to get Lena away from Cora and then make her promise not to tell her grandmother. Edna's career was going nowhere fast. Her biggest play closed after only two nights. Fed up with her dismal theater prospects and enraged that not only had her husband abandoned her, but that her mother-in-law was keeping her daughter from her, Edna took matters into her own hands. She arranged for a relative to bring Lena to her Harlem apartment, pretending to be sick. She then terrified the child, telling her that her father, Teddy, was planning to kidnap her, and the only way they could stay together was if they left town now. This night was the start of six tumultuous years on the road. Edna took Lena to Miami, where they lived in poverty at a boarding house that had no plumbing and dirt floors. Lena started school, but quickly saw the stark contrast between the North and the South. Whites here were openly hostile, and the Black children jeered at her on account of her light skin. It didn't help matters that her advanced reading skills put her in the grade ahead. Then her classmates began calling her dumb. All the while, Edna was still trying to make it as an actress with few opportunities. She was frequently broke and would take odd jobs. She also possibly turned to prostitution when things were especially desperate. She'd even disappear on Lena for weeks or months at a time, leaving her with a series of foster families. This went on for several years until her uncle Frank and his fiance took Lena in in Macon, Georgia. The children here were just as merciless, and she tried to darken her skin in an effort to better fit in. Worse still, her grandmother's insistence on proper diction and pronunciation ostracized her from children who had these really thick Southern accents and dialects. They thought that she thought she was better than them. 
light skin, dark skin, accent, no accent, this poor child couldn't fit in anywhere. Until that is, she discovered the theater for herself. At her Uncle Frank's college, she saw a rehearsal of Romeo and Juliet and was so awestruck she regularly came to the library to study plays. Now you remember her father, Teddy. He'd been absent this whole time, out making a name for himself as a gambling kingpin, restaurateur, and hotelier with his new wife in Pittsburgh. He showed up at Frank's house, handsome and impressive to Lena, making his entrance in a fancy black car. He stayed for a few weeks and showered her with gifts, including a brand new fur coat and pearls of street wisdom. But just as suddenly as he'd come, he disappeared from her life again, leaving her an orphan once more. Soon after, her mother once again uprooted her out of the stability of her uncle's house and took her to Atlanta, where Edna signed Lena up for dancing lessons. And just as she was starting to get comfortable again, her mother left her with an abusive foster parent before giving up entirely and sending the 11-year-old back to Brooklyn to live with her grandmother. Lena was relieved to be back in a steady environment. She was back in school, making friends, and joining social clubs. A family friend also took Lena under her wing in 1931 while Cora was traveling. Aunt Laura, as Lena called her, directed acting and dancing productions at the local Black Community Center. Lena finally had her opportunity to hone her craft, and she was even written up for her potential in the New Amsterdam News. When Cora returned from her trip in 1933, it was clear that she was sick, but her stoicism meant the family didn't discuss it. Lena moved in an apartment with her mother and new husband. At this point, Edna wasn't really getting anywhere and instead started turning her attention to the career of her beautiful daughter, who by this time was 16 and absolutely stunning. But then Lena's world was turned upside down. Cora died, and the 16-year-old was bereft. Even though Cora had been tough and unaffectionate, she was Lena's bedrock. Edna still hated Cora for the year she had kept her from Lena and wouldn't let Lena attend her funeral. Lena was despondent and went anyway. Edna then showed up and made a scene, and from then on, Edna was cut from the Horn family completely. Her grandfather died soon after, and her time as a member of the Black Bourgeoisie of Brooklyn was over. However, with her momager firmly in tow, the first taste of stardom was soon to come. Chapter 3, The Cotton Club and First Marriage All it took was a call to an old friend, and Lena was given an audition at The Cotton Club, a legendary Harlem nightclub that made stars out of young Black entertainers, but only in service to white audiences. Just the name of the club just makes my skin crawl. Movie stars like Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, and Gloria Swanson all frequented the establishment to hear the likes of Duke Ellington, Cab Calloway, Louis Armstrong, and Ethel Waters. In fact, the night that Lena went to visit the Cotton Club to check out the chorus line, Ethel Waters sang Stormy Weather, the song that would later be the cornerstone of Lena Horne's career. You had to be 18 to audition, and Lena was only 16, but things at the Cotton Club weren't exactly on the straight and narrow. The club was run by white gangsters who used their club as a front for selling liquor during Prohibition. Despite the fact that she was underaged, inexperienced, and didn't have much in the way of rhythm, Lena was chosen to join the chorus line of other fair-skinned beauties, all under age 21. She was a hard worker and fast learner, though, and she put her all into learning her steps. Her mother also hung around the club and would jump in any time she heard of a performer calling in sick to volunteer her daughter to perform their prize solos. And it worked! Lena started receiving singing solos, which again, at this point, she had no experience and didn't really know what she was doing, but she was hungry to learn and improve, so she took whatever she got. Like her life down south, however, this magnetic quality that kept singling her out caused resentment in her fellow chorus girls. 
They saw her as a teacher's pet and complained that it was her beauty that got her the parts. They didn't see any talent there. And Lena didn't really disagree. She had deep insecurities about her performances. But like a true pro, she kept grabbing opportunities as they presented. But even with the increased exposure and success of her increased stage time, the fact remained that Lena wasn't allowed to use the bathroom or the front entrance to the club because she was black. She spent her nights in skimpy clothing, singing and dancing, and being lusted after by white celebrities and gangsters, and all of this at just 16 years old. And not that this is much better, but she did get a big Broadway break on account of being discovered at the Cotton Club. The play was horribly racist and only lasted for nine performances, but it was enough to show her that there were bigger stages to conquer. Black newspapers also noticed her, and she became a fixture in their columns as a young, sophisticated starlet on the rise. She was even dubbed the Aristocrat of Harlem, which I'm sure her grandmother would have appreciated that moniker, but Lena felt a degree of guilt that Cora would not have approved of her work at the Cotton Club. With her boost in profile and her desire to leave the indignities of the Cotton Club behind, she quit and took opportunities to sing with different white bands. She even cut a record and got to tour the country wearing gorgeous dresses. But still, she wouldn't be allowed to enter with the band. Sometimes she wouldn't get served when they stopped at diners. She was also 18 by this point and definitely noticed good-looking young men around her. At the time, marriage and child-rearing was still the expectation, glamorous singer or not, and she began to fantasize about that life. And Lena had been brought up to believe in the rigidity of sex within marriage, so she wouldn't act on these new impulses. Things weren't going well with Edna either. Her mother was controlling, frequently absent, and just not really a parental figure to her. Lena romanticized the idea of her father and decided to visit him in Pittsburgh. Teddy, like his mother Cora, did not approve of the stage life for Lena, so he was happy to take her in. Now that she was grown, he didn't have to do the hard part of parenting and instead could enjoy her company and show her off. He introduced Lena to the son of a Baptist minister, Louis Jones. Jones was handsome, smart, and had aspirations to be a politician. Best of all, he had the promise of security and a life away from the road. Though she only knew him a few weeks, Lena accepted his proposal of marriage. Once they were married and she moved into his house, it became clear that she had made a terrible mistake. He was rough with her sexually and took out his frustrations on her. He was also controlling and didn't want her to work. Once she became pregnant, she felt completely trapped. Her only solace was going to the movies to escape in the plights of the silver screen. Lena had a boy and a girl with Lewis. Their names were Ted and Gail. She did her best as a wife and mother, but the life didn't suit her. When an agent called with an opportunity to star in a new movie called The Duke is Tops, she didn't hesitate. Lewis begrudgingly let her go to the Los Angeles shoot because they were in desperate need of money. The movie itself was a flop. The producers ran out of money, and for all her effort, she didn't even get paid. Lewis was furious and didn't let her go to the premiere in Pittsburgh. The local black newspapers then began to turn on Lena and characterized her as a diva. Though her first foray into film had been a disaster, she knew that she had to get back to life on the stage. Her marriage was over. Chapter 4. The Road to MGM Lena was joyful to escape her marriage and headed back to New York. When she got on the train, Lewis angrily said, you'll be back. And in her worst, most desperate moments, I'm sure she worried about that because the scene had changed and her previous stage credits didn't mean much anymore. She auditioned around, but nothing much stuck at first. Then in 1941, an old friend from the Cotton Club called her with a huge opportunity. Charlie Barnett was a white band leader who conducted a swing orchestra. His singer was sick and he needed a replacement. 
At first, Lena was apprehensive. She was tired of performing for white audiences while she couldn't even come in through the front door. But she also needed the money. After a trial run of engagements in New York and New Jersey, Barnett signed Horn to a six-month contract at $125 a week. It was the most money she'd ever made, and she was jubilant. But the same old song and dance happened again. She felt isolated and lonely, the only Black woman in a sea of white faces. She was denied service at diners and hotels, but she pushed on. When the band headed to a series of Southern engagements, Barnett paid Horn up front, but told her to stay home. She reunited with her children in Pittsburgh and was promptly served divorce papers. Lewis sued her for desertion and let her have custody of Gail, but not Teddy. She brought Gail with her back to New York and hit the audition circuit again, this time with the added pressure of being a single mom. But as fate would have it, she met another white man ready to pay her. This time, things were different. Barney Josephson wouldn't stand for racism, and he opened Cafe Society, the first non-segregated cabaret in Manhattan. He liked Lena's look and thought she sang well. He offered her $75 a week and promised he'd have a job for her forever. Lena excelled at the Cafe Society and even remarked that it was the sweetest job she ever had. She got to sing in an environment where people were treated equally, and she even got to meet blues heavyweight Billie Holiday and entertainer Paul Robeson. Now, this was totally news to me because I only know her as this legendary singer, but apparently in her early days, Lena wasn't that great of a singer, and she really relied on her beauty to do her heavy lifting. She didn't sing with feeling, and it hurt her performances. She was coached by Josephson and none other than Billie Holiday, who became something of a big sister to Lena. Lena was also awestruck to be in close proximity to Paul Robeson, who was one of the biggest African-American stars at the time. Through conversation, he realized that Lena was the granddaughter of Cora Calhoun, who had gotten him his scholarship to Rutgers. He took Lena under his wing, his very progressive political wing. He encouraged her to speak out for her race and to be a role model to others. Robeson, like Cora, was politically active and wanted Lena to embrace this role as well. Soon she began receiving a lot of press as the queen of the Cafe Society. As had happened so many times before, this rankled her competitors at Cafe Society, but Lena's forward momentum toward bigger things seemed inevitable now. An avid moviegoer, she knew that Hollywood was next to conquer. When she was offered a job opening a new nightclub in Hollywood, the Little Trocadero, she readily accepted. As fate would have it, Roger Edens, a musical director and voice coach for MGM, had seen Lena perform at the Cafe Society a few months prior. Now that she was in Los Angeles, he arranged for Lena to meet Arthur Freed, who was the studio's producer for all their top musicals. Now, a little backstory and context here. The wheels had been in motion for several years to start grooming an African-American starlet. This was due to pressure from NAACP president Walter White, before there was a Breaking Bad. White had been advocating the movie studios to give Black audiences a star that they could relate to, not another mammy and not another whore. MGM had recently realized that the African-American movie-going public was an untapped commercial force and had been thinking about signing someone. At this time, remember, the studio system really controlled who worked and who became famous, and MGM was in the business of creating glamorous movie stars. Lena was brought in for a meeting with Freed and asked to sing for him. Also randomly present was the director, Vincent Minnelli, Liza Minnelli's dad. He'll come up again later. Freed was pleased with what he heard and asked her to sing for Louis B. Mayer, MGM's president. Mr. Mayer was also pleased. 
According to an interview she gave years later, that night, Lena phoned her father in Pittsburgh. She asked him to come out to California because MGM was interested in putting her in a movie. Her father arrived the next day, dressed to the nines and looking very dignified. He went into Mr. Mayor's office and said to the MGM president, Mr. Mayor, it's a great privilege you're offering my daughter, but I can buy my daughter her own maid. Mr. Mayor eagerly, eagerly agreed that Lena would never have to play a maid. Chapter 5 on Hollywood and the Blacklist. In January of 1942, Lena Horne signed her Hollywood contract with MGM. The studio agreed to pay her $350 per week and had her on contract for seven years. She also had stipulations that she would sing and play legitimate roles only, no cooks, maids, or racist comedies. MGM told her she was to receive the full Glamour Girl treatment, but the studio was clueless on the makeup and hairstyling of black women. They had to have a foundation custom made to match her skin, which they called light Egyptian. Later, they would use light Egyptian on white actresses to allow them to play roles that called for darker skin. Her hair was another fiasco. The hairdressers refused to work on her hair because she was black. So the head of the department, Sidney Gilleroff, the icon who had created hairstyles for Vivian Lee and Louise Brooks, stepped in to do her hair. Lena later said, Assembly line MGM made me look exactly like everybody else there, except I was a bronze swan. You'd think these sort of indignities would break a person down, but Lena was excited to start her work in Hollywood. Her feature film debut was set to be in a movie called Panama Hattie. In this film, she played an island girl who sings a number and dances a rumba. The film got poor reviews, but newspapers were quick to point out that Lena was the high point. The media gave her nicknames like Sepia Songstress and Chocolate Cream Chanteuse, which I mean, she was excited that people were taking notice and she was getting more opportunities, but those are all pretty demeaning names to call someone. After this minor success, Lena had to wait around for the next project. There were parts available, but all the roles were the cliches that she wanted to avoid. She did get excited about the role of an Arab vixen, even though the cliches of this role ran counter to the role she wanted. In the end, the studio used Horn's Light Egyptian Foundation on Hedy Lamarr. This incensed Lena, as Hedy Lamarr was the measure by which Horn was judged. She was frequently called a black Hedy Lamarr. While she waited for her next big part, Lena got increasingly close with director Vincent Minnelli. The two frequently had dinner together, and there were rumors that the two were more than friends. Lena felt he was a kindred spirit as a fellow New Yorker displaced to Hollywood. This friendship proved fortuitous because when MGM bought the rights to the all-black cast Broadway play Cabin in the Sky, Minnelli was tapped to direct and offered Lena a co-starring role. After years of playing bit parts in chorus lines and movies, Lena was finally getting a chance to do some real acting. It was the first all-black musical released by the studio in more than a decade, and the studio hoped that its release would get the NAACP off its back. I'll talk more about Cabin in the Sky later in the recommendations section, but the film did reasonably well despite the fact that many theaters in the South refused to show it. It was also nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song, which was sung by Ethel Waters, who was Lena's on-set nemesis. And again, we'll come back to that. But once filming was complete, MGM had the same issue as before. No roles for its contracted leading lady. They, lo they loaned her out to Fox Studios to work on a film called Stormy Weather, another all-black cast, and this time, Lena would be its star. Bill Robinson, one of the most famous African-American actors who had ever lived, would star opposite her, and her old friend from the Cotton Club, Cab Calloway, would also be featured. Stormy Weather was the height of her film career, and the song of the same name, 
which was originally sung by her enemy, Ethel Waters, would become the crown jewel of her legacy. After the success of Stormy Weather, Lena kept receiving small roles in films, but oftentimes her scenes would get cut entirely because many theaters would just not show them because of her skin color. She didn't have many friends in Hollywood, save for Minnelli and a secret affair with Orson Welles. She grew more and more disenchanted with Hollywood and spent much of her time in between film projects and cabaret shows flying to military bases to do USO shows. Black military men weren't allowed to hang pictures of white actresses in their lockers or their rooms. So when Lena Horne stormed Hollywood, she had a grateful audience. But even when she came to perform her shows, she'd find that the black soldiers were seated in the back, sometimes behind German prisoners of war. Disgusted, she would walk to the back to sing for the black soldiers with her back to the white audience. Later, she focused more on shows for the Tuskegee Airmen. As she rediscovered her social consciousness through work with her friend Paul Robeson, who was affiliated with groups that had communist sympathies, this landed her squarely on the Hollywood blacklist. MGM had revised her contract so that she was only contracted 10 weeks a year, and rarely did she get a choice role. At the height of the Red Scare and McCarthyism, Horn was forced to write a mea culpa that completely disavowed her old friend Paul Robeson. Again, I'll talk more about this in the recommendation section, but just a little aside, she did in later years express remorse and praised Robeson as someone who awakened her inner activist. She'd been in more than a dozen movies by this point, but Hollywood was frustrating. The studios felt safer using her light Egyptian foundation to darken the skin of white actresses than deal with the pushback from white audiences. On pulling away from the Hollywood illusion, Lena said it best. In my early days, I was a sepia Hedy Lamar. Now I'm black and a woman and singing my own way. Chapter six, nightclub queen turned activist. Throughout this time, Lena was still going through the process of divorce with Lewis, but she had also met someone new. Lenny Hayton was the white musical arranger at MGM. Because of the uproar that an interracial relationship would cause, they kept their romance and subsequent marriage secret for more than three years. While she was very fond of Hayton, he was one of the few men in her life who stuck around and treated her well. Lena told interviewers in the 1980s that part of the reason she married him was for the security and access that being married to a white man could bring to her life and career. Disillusioned with Hollywood's resistance to giving her substantial roles, Lena fell back on her one true love, the nightclub circuit. After years of practice and honing her craft, she had developed into a singer that brought her true range of emotions to her performances. Lena began headlining all the major nightclubs throughout the United States. She was a frequent singer at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas before the height of its Rat Pack popularity, and she also broke the color barrier at the Copa Cabana Club in New York. She also spent the 1950s and 1960s making various appearances on television specials and variety shows, including The Ed Sullivan Show and The Judy Garland Show. However, a lifetime of not fitting in anywhere and being told no due to her skin color had taken its toll. While she had once followed her grandmother Cora's edicts about respectability, in the 1960s, Lena fully embraced herself and spoke fervently about her pride in being a Black woman. Lena had some serious credentials when it came to her civil rights activism. She was a tireless worker for the NAACP and the National Council of Negro Women. She attended a rally with Medgar Evers the weekend before he was assassinated. And she was on stage with Dr. Martin Luther King at the March on Washington. Before King had given his famous I Have a Dream speech, Lena was introduced to the crowd and she cried out, 
freedom at the top of her lungs. Eleanor Roosevelt had long been a hero of Lena's, and they worked together on anti-lynching laws. Lena also met with President John F. Kennedy with a group from the Democratic National Committee two days prior to his assassination. Her emerging sense of identity and the stress of maintaining an interracial relationship in an unkind world took a toll on her marriage, though. She and Hayton had been having problems for a while, but her need to explore what it meant to be a Black woman led to their estrangement as she wanted to figure things out on her own. Tragedy then struck in 1970 when her son Ted died of kidney disease. Lenny Hayton died less than a year later from heart disease while the couple were separated. Once again, the most important men in her life were gone. She retreated to her books to help manage her grief. Lena kept up with her busy schedule of nightclub engagements and television appearances throughout the 1970s and enjoyed a brief Hollywood comeback thanks to her work as Glinda in The Wiz. But 1981 would prove to be the year of her ultimate triumph. After a lifetime of difficulty and indignity, Lena starred in a one-woman show called Lena Horn, The Lady, and Her Music. In it, she passionately told her life story with the songs she made famous throughout her career sprinkled throughout. The show was a massive success and won her a Tony and two Grammys, one of which was shared with Quincy Jones, who produced the cast album. She followed this up with a Grammy-winning live album in the 1990s before ultimately retiring from public life. Lena was a trailblazing icon for African-American women in show business. The legendary singer and actress died on May 9, 2010, at the age of 92. Chapter 7, Immortal Starlet. Unlike the other subjects we've covered so far in historical, Lena Horne is relatively recent history. She died nine years ago at the age of 92. This means that as of yet, there isn't much about her when it comes to historical fiction. But the silver lining here is that Lena lived during the advent of Hollywood, so we have countless opportunities to actually see and hear her. Let's start with nonfiction, though. Currently, there's only one definitive biography that I could find about her. It's called Stormy Weather by James Gavin, and it was released in 2009, one year before she died. The author got to interview her during a time when she was particularly reclusive, and the book provides a lot more context and detail than I was able to go into today. The author's a music writer, and he has also written books about Chet Baker, Peggy Lee, and George Michael. When you're reading his prose, you can absolutely tell that he's a music writer because of the turns of phrases he uses, so it's not too stuffy the way some biographies are. Lena also wrote an autobiography, which she published in 1965. There's also a biography from 1983, but for the purposes of research, I decided to focus on Stormy Weather because it was written after she died and it just had more information. You can still get copies of the other two, but they're a lot harder to find. There's also a new children's book called The Legendary Miss Lena Horne by Carol Boston Weatherford and Elizabeth Zunon. This is a beautifully illustrated introduction to the singer written for children, and it talks about everything that we talked about today, just abbreviated. Now, I was very excited because I did manage to find one historical fiction title about Lena. The book is called The Blues Walked In by Kathleen George. It came out in 2018, and it focuses on Lena and her friendship with a Lebanese girl, and the eventual accusation of murder against their mutual friend during that time that I told you about where Lena went to Pittsburgh to get to know her father. I enjoyed this book, but I found it uneven. It would be really good and compelling for like 20 to 50 pages and then kind of fall off. 
I was also a little irked because everything that was happening around them was really tumultuous, but their characters kind of felt flat emotionally. I think it's really good if you're interested in learning about Lena and getting inside her head more than a biography can let you do. Um, and it's really great about the beginning of her ascent into Hollywood, but that's kind of where it drops off. In terms of movies, there aren't any biopics about Lena, although apparently Oprah had one in the works set to star Alicia Keys. And I'm not sure what's going on with that, but it sounds like it's on Hollywood's radar, so I'm sure we'll have one in the coming years. But again, Lena was actually in movies, so we can just watch those. Now, the only one I was able to get my hands on was Cabin in the Sky, which I'll just say, they begin the movie with a note saying that, hey, back in the day, people were really racist, so keep that in mind as you're watching the movie. And also, the studio doesn't believe that stuff anymore. So that kind of tells you what you need to know about the content. In terms of Lena's performance, she's very good at playing a gorgeous, sinful vixen, but it's also very much a performance from a time in Hollywood, particularly in the big musicals, when everybody really overacted, so it's kind of funny. What was super interesting to me was finding out about how she and Ethel Waters, who's the other top build, build actress in um, Cabin in the Sky, they did not get along. Ethel Waters hated Lena because she was young and pretty, and Waters felt a bit threatened by her. She was really mean to Lena on set, and she influenced other members of the cast to be frosty as well. But you would have no idea about any of this from watching the movie. And I'll be upfront, I did not like the movie, but I also didn't like Gone with the Wind. These films just really aren't my jam, but I do think it's good to watch from a historical context. If you're interested in learning more about her Hollywood years and subsequent blacklisting, you need to listen to the podcast, You Must Remember This. Oh my goodness, that is what I want Storical to be when it grows up. It's one of my favorite podcasts. It details all the secrets of old Hollywood, and it's just, it's amazing. And if my Storical episodes are ever half as good, I will be very proud of myself. Episodes that you should listen to, which I will link to in the show notes, are Star Wars Episode 7, Lena Horne, and Blacklist Episode 12, Lena Horne and Paul Robeson. Listen to those, and you'll get way more info about that era of her life. And... I'm also going to link to an interview with Horn herself on the podcast American Masters by PBS. I listened to this first before I listened to or read anything else about her. And oh my God, I was starstruck by just her speaking voice. It was so pretty. I could listen to her talk all day. In this interview, she talks about her life and she has a pretty positive outlook despite all the adversity that she faced. And you can also find her entire performance of her Tony winning Lena Horne, The Lady and Her Music on YouTube, which I will link to. Like I said earlier, she talks about her life and sings all her most popular songs, and it's really powerful. She has a commanding stage presence, and you can just tell that as she got older, she really owned her story and identity. And her performance in The Wiz is also on YouTube, which I will link to, so lots of opportunities to see her in action and hear her in her own voice. Well, that's all I have for you today. I hope you enjoyed learning about Lena Horn and that you'll go read more about her, check out her movies. If you've enjoyed this, please leave a review on iTunes because algorithms run our lives and it helps people find historical. You can also send me an email at hi at immortalperfumes.com if you have any feedback. And join me again next month to hear the tale of the moody king who started the English Reformation because of his lust for a son. <laughs>